Well, there are some good numbers, like 72 to 7. That's a fairly good number. There are some not so good numbers. The numbers are actually all over the place, depending on where you get your stats. The Gallup polls suggest U.S. church attendance has remained about the same for decades. They say 70 years, suggesting close to 40% of Americans say they attend church almost every week. There are others, however, who suggest church attendance, however that is defined, is actually less than half that, less than 20% of Americans regularly attend church. In raw numbers, Gallup says 132 million Americans attend church weekly, while those others suggest the number is more like 52 million. The researchers cite what is called the halo effect, the difference between what those surveyed say they do and what they actually do. That is, when surveyed, people tend to inflate desirable activities, you know, like church attendance, and underreport undesirable activities like, I don't know, drinking. The numbers, whatever they actually are, are startling. Southern Baptist researcher Tom Rayner suggests that 8 to 10,000 churches in the U.S. will close this year. Uh, Yes, others will open, but the growth of churches is not keeping up with the population growth. Here's another startling number. Every year, 3 million people, every year, 3 million people go from churchgoer to religiously unaffiliated. Clearly, the church is facing decline in some quarters, largely mainline Protestant churches like Methodist, Episcopal, Lutheran, Presbyterian, etc. In fact, in the last three decades, last 30 years, there has not been one year of growth in mainline Protestant churches. That's, that's startling. Eh, researchers love to cite the fact that evangelical churches are either growing or at least maintaining. I suppose we fall in that category. And so those are all mind-numbing statistics. Suffice it to say, in the United States, church participation is largely on the decline. Here's the more important question. Why? Why are people attending church less? Why are they abandoning the church of Jesus Christ? (laughs) Well, we can think of all of the normal, regular reasons, right? Well, the the, the church is full of hypocrites. (laughs) The church is so judgmental. The the church is against my lifestyle. The the church did not accept me as I am. And my my own personal favorite, the growing number of people who say, well, I'm spiritual, just not religious. What does that mean? In, In other words, I have a private faith, whatever that is. But I'm not interested in a public faith gathering with people of like faith. And and so, for example, let's look at a couple of articles. The the first from CNN, that bastion of conservatism. (laughs) By the way, just this morning, I went to Fox News, just this morning early, probably while you were still sleeping, and there was an article that appeared, five reasons people are not going to church, just today, written by Andy Stanley. It was a very interesting article. I don't have time to interact with it. CNN published survey results of the top nine reasons People 
are going to church less. Number one, they practice their faith in other ways. Translated, I'm spiritual, not religious. And then number two, they are not believers. <laughs> At least they're honest. And then number three, well, they cite no reason as very important. They just don't go. And number four, they haven't found a house of worship they like. <laughs> These percentages don't equal 100, by the way. I guess you were allowed to answer more than one for you statisticians that will bother you. I, I haven't found a house of worship I like. Remember that when we're going to come back to it as if worship is about me. Number five, they don't like the sermons. What? <laughs> Obviously, I haven't surveyed you. They don't, they, they don't feel welcome. They, they don't have the time. Other things more important, are they? Poor health or mobility, I guess that's reasonable. No house of worship in their area, despite that there are 330,000 Orthodox churches in our country. Another article uh, by blogger, researcher, evangelical pastor Kerry Newhoff suggests the following 10 reasons even committed believers are attending church less. Number one, greater affluence. That money gives people options, he suggests. Number two, I have commented on this, higher focus on kids' activity. A growing number of kids are in sports which require weekend travel. To quote him, parents are choosing sports over church. Number three, more travel, business, pleasure travel. Number four, blended and single parent families. What does this have to do with church attendance? In shared custody agreements, 50-50, you will have some children only 26 weeks a year at most. Number five, I love this one, online options. I mean, who needs the church when I can get the experience online? After all, it's about me, right? Number six, the cultural disappearance of guilt. In other words, guilt of missing church used to drive people to church, but now that we don't have, we don't feel guilty anymore, so I can sleep in if I want to. Number seven, self-directed spirituality keeps appearing on spiritual, not religious. Number eight, failure to see direct benefit. In other words, in our consumer-driven culture, church is for me, and I better get some personal benefit or I'm out. We'll come back to that one. Number nine, very interesting, valuing attendance over engagement. The author suggests that if people only attend to attend and not to be involved, their attendance will eventually wane. Let me be clear about that. If this is your experience with Alliance Bible Fellowship, this hour and 15 minutes, you'll eventually disappear. That's what he says. Number 10, a massive culture shift. That seems like it's enough. We're becoming less of a Christian nation. So, let me make it personal. Why do you come to church. Better, why do you come to this gathered assembly that we often call church? I mean, besides the great sermons. And why do you miss? Well, 
Listen, we do not keep personal attendance records. We do not pass a tablet down the rows for you to sign. We do not have facial recognition software at our entrances. But when you miss, why do you miss? What's more important to you? In our ongoing study of Hebrews, the author addresses this issue head on, but, but perhaps a little differently than we might expect. In fact, I'm not sure his writing addresses many of our current attendance patterns or concerns. In, in fact, he might actually have something a bit different to say to us, but, but maybe his words apply to us after all. Let's read the very familiar passage, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 25, say this. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus and by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, Let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Familiar verses. Last week, we finished the author's central doctrinal section, stretching from chapter 7 or 5, depending on how you read, through chapter 10. He's clearly made his case. Jesus and the new covenant that he brought through the gospel, that is the death, bear, his death, burial, and resurrection, are, are superior to the old covenant. In fact, we've seen, clearly seen that the old, old covenant was a type pointing forward to Jesus. This has been incredibly good news. We are saved. Sins forever removed. Conscience forever cleansed of guilt. And and, and, and actually perfected. So now what? How should we then live as a consequence of our new relationship to God? The author tells us. Notice how he began with the word therefore. Therefore. In light of all of the things that he has said in the letter to this point, therefore, this is how you ought to live. And he spends the rest of the letter focusing on application. He, he, he started, he, in other words, he started with doctrine and now he moves to duty. From, from creed to conduct, education to instruction, he has laid a, a, a doctrinal foundation before moving to the practical and lifestyle implications of calling ourselves Christians. It ought to make a difference. Here's the outline of the text. This is the summary of that great doctrine in the first three verses and then the corresponding resulting duty. Three times the author says, in light of these great truths, let us. Let us draw near, let us hold fast, and let us help others to do the same. Let me just let you in on a little hint. In order to help others to do the same, we got to hang out together.
Let's look at the great doctrinal summary he, be, he gives us in those first three verses. He basically says, because of our access and because of our advocate, access advocate, let us. First, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, since we have access to God. He's made a big deal about this. We, we should know what he means by now. Under the old covenant, worshipers could not enter the holy space. Only one could once per year. And frankly, he did his work quickly because there was not a lot of confidence. You may remember a couple of guys named Nadab and Abihu, sons of Aaron, the high priest, who went into the tabernacle and, and, and gave an offering that was not according to prescription, and fire came from the presence of the Lord and consumed them. I would suggest that this did not engender confidence. Only the high priest could enter the holy place once per year in the prescribed manner. You'll come my way. Under the new covenant, our high priest has made it possible to, to draw near to God in the prescribed way. You'll come my way by his own blood to enter the very presence of God. And we can actually do that confidently, boldly even, not flippantly, not in, with arrogant swagger, but with, but with confidence in the access that our God and Father will accept us because he has accepted the blood of his son. This is incredible. Further, we can enter by a new and living way. It's new in that it was paved by our forerunner, Jesus. It's new in that it was through his own blood and not through the blood of bulls and goats. But what does he mean by new and living way? Well, certainly because the new way provides eternal life to his followers. The old covenant did not do that. It's a living way. But, but also because when the blood of bulls and goats was offered, <laughs> killed an animal, that animal stayed dead. The, the, all of those high priests, they kept dying. But under the new covenant, the offering was sacrificed by the high priest, and the sacrifice did not stay dead. He was raised from the dead, and we have an eternal high priest who perpetually intercedes for us. Notice, by the way, through a new and living way, most point out, it is, in fact, the only way. It's the prescribed way. Remember the words of Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I'm the prescribed way. No one comes to the Father except through me. Notice he opened the way he inaugurated the way through the veil, undoubtedly a reference to the thick veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place, that, housed, that holy, most holy that housed the Ark of the Covenant in the very presence of God. It, it, he opened the way through the veil, he says. This author says that is his flesh. That's interesting. What does that mean? Lots of discussion, but most agree this author is poetically connecting the veil and the body of Christ symbolically. We've seen this already, Matthew chapter 27, his crucifixion account, we read, and Jesus cried out with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And at that moment, behold, the veil of the temple was torn into from top to bottom and the earth shook rock split. So at the moment Jesus died, gave up his spirit, the veil of the temple 
torn in two, top to bottom, signifying open access. The very way into the presence of God made possible. So, so, so the poetic license, if you will, is this. The author takes this license to say, when Jesus' flesh, that is his body, was broken, so also the veil of the temple was rent in two. Now, rent in two. now don't, don't miss this. We enter then through his broken body. That's the prescribed way. When the, when the veil was torn asunder, it doesn't mean anybody can come any old way they want. No, 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 no. Through the prescribed way, through the broken body of our Christ. That's what he's saying. So since, so first, since we have confidence because of the work of Christ, we can draw near, enter into the very presence of God. Second, verse 21, since we have an advocate, a great high priest over the house of God, since we have a new high priest, not according to the old order, the, the Levitical order, but he's been made, made a big deal about this, according to the Melchizedekan order, who is over the house of God, we can actually draw near. Access advocate. Author made a big deal about this back in chapter 3. He was proving the superiority of Jesus to Moses. You need to understand that was a big deal. You need to remember that he was writing to a Jewish audience. Moses was the hero of the Old Testament. And our author says, but he was nothing compared to Jesus. Look at chapter 3. Therefore, holy brothers, sisters, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the, uh, the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses was also in God's house. For he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, but by just as much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all his house, God's house, as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast. We see that Jesus is the high priest over the house. Moses was in the house. Jesus is over the house. Moses was a servant in the house. Jesus is the son over the house. You can't compare them. And, and, and what is this house? The people of God, whose house we are, notice, if we hold fast. So, since we have Jesus as our great priest over us, since he has opened the way into the presence of God by the sacrifice of himself, since we can actually approach God with confidence, since, 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 therefore, let us do these three things. And, and, and again, he encourages, perhaps stronger, he commands us to do the following three things. First, let us draw near. Isn't that the point of religion? Let us, he commends us, let us draw near to God. How, verse 22, with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And right about now, you just checked out because that's a lot of Christian words. Don't zone out. Let me break it, break it down. Let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. What does he mean? In Scripture, the heart is the center of your being. It's who you are. It's, it's everything all wrapped up in one. Intellect, emotion, will. It's who you are. It's the real you, we could say. 
The word sincere here is literally the word true. So let us draw near with a true heart, with, with the real you, the true you. In other words, no masks, no facades, no faking it. Be genuine with complete trust and devotion. That's what he's saying. With a sincere, true heart, faithfully committed in full assurance. This is related to the confidence with which we draw near. We, listen, we actually believe, we are Christians, and we actually believe that we can draw near to the God of the universe. Are you kidding me? They couldn't do that in the Old Covenant. It's in chapter 11, he's going to say, and without faith, full assurance, without faith, it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Do you see? We come into his presence with confidence sincere, true heart, not doubting, but believing with full assurance of faith. And why can we do that? How can we actually approach the very God of the universe with confident assurance? Because of who you are? Not exactly. But because of who you are in Christ. A lot being said lately about your identity in Christ, I actually think that's a good concept, okay? It is because of who you are in Christ that you can actually approach the very throne of God. How so? Our hearts have been sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. This has been a main point for this author. We don't slink into his presence with heads bowed in shame and embarrassment. Our sin has been taken away. Guilt removed. Conscience cleansed by the very blood of his son. We can go right into the throne room. We've been invited. Further, our bodies have been washed with pure water. That's interesting. Notice, I would suggest we are cleansed both inside and out. This is perhaps, this washing is perhaps a, a reference to the washing of regeneration by the Holy Spirit. It could take us back to Ezekiel chapter 36, sprinkled clean, um, perhaps symbolized by water baptism. Pure water, the, the water is not special, blessed pure water, okay? Just to be clear, when we did baptism last week right there, we got the water right out of the spigot in the locker room, okay? And I didn't do any blessing of the water. It's just water. But it symbolizes the washing of regeneration, being sprinkled clean by the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Sins removed, heart cleansed, bodies washed inside and out so that we can actually draw near Again, they could not do this under the old covenant. Second, second command, therefore, let us draw near. Second, let us hold fast the confession of our hope, faith, hope. But guess what the third one's going to be? Love. Without wavering. These readers were thinking about wavering. Don't, don't do it. Don't Don't waver. He's told us a couple of times the eternal importance of holding fast our confidence, our assurance firm to the end. Look back at those verses in, in, in chapter 3. Verse 6, we looked at, but Christ was faithful as the son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm to the end. Hold fast. And then a few verses later, for we have become particulars of Christ. If we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. 
Seems a little ominous, doesn't it? There we saw by holding fast our confidence, our hope, our assurance firm to the end, we prove the reality of our faith. You don't hold fast, no faith. Remember, looking at those verses closely, we see if we don't hold fast our confidence, our hope, firm to the end, it means that we are not his house. That's what it says. If we don't hold fast our assurance firm to the end, it means we have not become partakers of Christ. So here he says, hold fast our confession, our hope without wavering. Hold on, my brothers and sisters, to the end. Thus, we will together prove the reality of our faith. Hold on. Yes, he will hold on to you. I believe in that. But we can't neglect or ignore the the command here that we are also to hold on. I would say a couple of things about this. First, remember, these were Jewish believers who were facing persecution and considering returning to Judaism. So our author says, don't do that. Hold Hold on to your hope till the end without wavering. People, we have a great high priest over us who opened the way into the presence of God. We can approach his throne to find grace and, and find help, find mercy in our time of need. This is the end of chapter 4. It says where he says, draw near, hold fast. That's the same thing here. Uh, draw near, hold fast. Don't quit. Hold on without wavering. I know, I know sometimes it gets really, really hard and sometimes you're wondering whether or not it's worth it. Hold on. Draw, draw near. Don't quit. When the church father Chrysostom was brought before the Roman emperor, the emperor, this is when Christianity was an illegal religion, the emperor threatened him with banishment if he did not recant his Christian faith. Chrysostom then famously replied, you cannot banish me for this world is my father's house. But I will slay you, said the emperor. No, you cannot for my life is hid with Christ and God. I will take away your treasures. No, you cannot, for my treasure is in heaven and my heart is there. But I will drive you away from man and you shall have no friend left. No, you cannot, for I have a friend in heaven from whom you cannot separate me. I defy you, for there is nothing you can do to hurt me. That is holding on firm to the end. That is the confidence that we can have. Do whatever you want. You can't take it. Second thing I would note is this hold fast the confession of your faith. Church history, a confession of our faith was considered most important, and so they developed things called creeds by which they confessed their faith, which they actually said aloud together. We did that this morning. We sang aloud a confession of faith together. I loved it. Further, they developed catechisms, that is, questions and answers by which they could teach their, largely their children, not exclusively, questions by which the children could memorize the answers and they could learn theology and doctrine, the orthodox truths of the Christian faith. We are doing that on Wednesday nights, just so you know, for for kindergarten through fifth grade. See, I don't have time for it. Yes, you do. You don't have... You know what time? Not for Wednesday nights. You need to bring your kids here, kindergarten through fifth grade, where they're going to learn 52, uh, 52 questions, one for every week of the year, that they will memorize the answers to important doctrines of the Christian faith. And the truth is, you see, in church history, they would die for those truths. Today, we are quick to jettison truth if it causes someone heartburn. 
if we feel that it unnecessarily divides us. And yet here the author says, hold fast our confession of faith. Jude will say it like this, beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly, fight for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. And I say to you, my beloved brothers and sisters, hold fast your confession. Don't let the orthodox truths of the Christian faith, no matter how difficult or divisive. Don't let them go. Hold on to them. Defend them. Fight for them. Even, even die for them. They're that important. How can we do that? By reminding each other that we serve a God who is faithful. He made some promises and he cannot lie. He will keep them the challenges in the end will be worth it, so hold on. Finally, the last command is found in those familiar words, starting in verse 24, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. So, let us draw near, let us hold fast, and let us mutually encourage one another to do the same. This is the only time one another, that's one word in the Greek, one another appears in the book of Hebrews. But it was a common word in the Old, I mean in the New Testament. It reminds us of something very important. Listen up. It reminds us of something very, very important. Namely, that we are not alone. We're not meant to be alone. Family and I are, found out recently about a, a um, series on Hulu um, called Alone. How many of you heard of it? Oh, you got to watch it. We just finished the second season. If you want to know who wins, I'll tell you. What they do is they take 10 contestants or 10 participants, and they let them select from a pre-approved list of items. They're allowed to take 10 items like an axe, a saw, or, or, or tarp, or something like that, but no food, no water. And they take those 10 participants, and they drop them off. Oh, not together. Mm-mm, mm-mm. They took, in the first two seasons, they took them to... Vancouver Island, British Columbia. And they're all separated. They're all completely alone with the bears and with the cougars. And they say, now survive. Survive. Find water, find shelter, find food, survive. And they have their own cameras. They don't even have a camera crew. They're they're documenting it themselves because they are totally alone. And so each each, each, uh, week, you know, you watch the, you know, watch... Who taps out? What's that? Well, they gave everybody, they give everybody a satellite phone. And if it gets too much, you get too scared, or whatever, they can, it's called tap out. They can, they can push the satellite phone and someone will be there within hours to get them. And they quit. Oh, but by the way, if you're the last one of the 10, if you don't quit, if you make it to the very end, you get half a million bucks. Dude, that's a lot of money. That's a lot of motivation. Wouldn't you think? I'm in. Sign me up. As we watch this, we've watched two seasons now, it is amazing to me the number of people, some tap out, remember, use a satellite phone, they tap out because they're scared of the bears. Other times, you know, um, they maybe are running out of food and they're getting really, really hungry. They all lose lots of weight and blah, blah, blah. But it's amazing to me the number of times people pick up the phone, they tap out, they're doing great. I mean, they get a nicer house than I do. I'm not kidding. They build a house. Okay, that might be pushing it. But it's amazing what they build and the ingenuity. One guy built a kayak. 
It's a ma- with a tarp. It is amazing what they do. But you know what? They're doing great. And at some point they're going, I am alone and I miss my wife. I miss my kids. And they tap out. That is by far the overwhelming number of people who quit. We are not meant to be alone. They say it over and over. Our faith is not private. It is meant to be exercised, experienced publicly in community. In other words, let me say it clearly. That I'm spiritual but not religious is garbage. Here we are to give careful thought, consider how to stimulate. The word is only used one other time exactly in this form in the New Testament where Paul and Barnabas argued about taking John Mark, remember the quitter, with them on their second missionary journey and there arose such a sharp disagreement. That's the word. Such a sharp provocation between them. So sharp that they separated. You see, this, this stimulate is a very strong word, and it's typically negative. It means to stimulate. But yes, it means more than that. It means to provoke. Listen, there is a sense in which we are supposed to strongly stimulate, even provoke each other in our Christian faith. Reminds me of a ministry in Colorado Springs called the Fellowship of Christian Cowboys. Come on, it's the West. They have cowboys. At least they think. The Fellowship of Christian Cowboys. Um, uh, Their verse, Hebrews 10.24. And let us consider how we may spur one another on to love and good deeds. It's so corny. But, but a spur against a horse's side is not particularly pleasant, but it spurs them, it provokes them to action. That's the idea. We're to stimulate each other to love. The word is agape. It's the strongest form of of love used in the New Testament speaks of a self-sacrificing love. Let's consider how we can encourage each other to have a self-sacrificing love for, for one another. You see, it seems to me if you make your faith private, if it's just not you and Jesus, how special, that's not necessarily uh, showing any love for others. You're spiritual, not religious. Think of it this way. You may be able to draw near You may be able to hold fast by yourself. I don't think so, but let's just say that you can. You cannot, however, love. You cannot stimulate someone else if there is no one else. We've got to be religious, that is, in religious relationship and fellowship in order to love one another. Further, we are to stimulate each other to good deeds, to be expressed primarily toward one another. We're supposed to serve one another with good deeds. Again, if your faith is private, if you're spiritual, not religious, there is no necessity of good deeds because it's all about you. We're to encourage each other, love and good deeds toward each other and he says in order to do that, we must not forsake the assembling of ourselves together as is the habit of some We've got to spend time together corporately in small groups, one-on-one, I don't care, do it at the coffee shop. Again, there is really no such thing as a purely private faith. If you, listen, if you think that you do not need the church, you are sadly mistaken. 
in the next passage, he's actually going to say that leaving the church potentially spells disaster called apostasy. And we can all think of people who used to be among us who now say, I don't believe in Jesus anymore. You need the church. I have a couple of very important thoughts and then I'm done. First, let's remember the context of Hebrews. Why were some forsaking the corporate gatherings, assembling with other believers? Quite simply, it was fear. Fear of reprisal, fear of persecution. What are the reasons professing believers are abandoning the church today? Largely selfish, self-centered, consumer-driven reasons. I don't like the sermons. I don't like the worship. I don't like the people. They don't like me. They don't accept me. I've got better things to do. Is that right? All self-focused reasons. Don't do that. Don't focus on you because it is not about you. It's about us. See, that leads to the second thing. I could say, I could stand up here and say, you need the church. You need the gathered assembly. You need relationships with other Christians because you do. I could say that because you need other Christians to hold you accountable, to encourage you, to strengthen your faith, and hope to teach you, to serve you, and to love you. And all of that would be absolutely true. But that is not actually what he says here. Remember, he said to consider, to give careful thought to how we can stimulate one another to love and good deeds. It's not about you, it's about us. Meaning the church needs you. The, the, the church needs you and your gifts to serve her. We need what you have. When you are not here, this body suffers. Part of the body is missing. I'm not just talking about Sunday morning worship. The church is much more than that, but it certainly includes that. We need you for encouragement. We need you for love. We need you for good deeds. As much as you need us, it is not about you. It is about Christ and about his body called the church. It is about us. There is no I in church. I just thought of that this morning. Come on, that's good. Last, we need to encourage each other all the more as we see the day drawing near. What day? The day of Christ's return. Come on. It's been 2,000 years. That's right. Which means at the very least, we are 2,000 years closer to his return. We are to live as if we expect he is coming back because he is. So let's help each other in the journey. Do not give up. Draw near, hold fast, and let's help each other to do the same. I'm going to suggest that there is nothing more important in your life than the church of Jesus Christ.